0: Today's episode of Forward Guidance is going to be different than our usual fare. We have a special episode devoted to energy, climate, and security. I am joined by Doomberg and Professor Steve Keen. Doomberg is a student of the energy markets whose writings are on Substack about energy shortages and uh, you know, critique of ESG policies has taken the world by storm. And Professor Keen is an economist and proponent of the Green New Deal. Uh, as well as uh, uh, the world's uh, leading critic of neoclassical economics. So both of you have a uh, critique of sort of mainstream energy policy. I think you come at it from, from different angles. So I'm, I'm delighted to, to be joined by you both. Uh, Doomberg and Professor Keene, welcome. Thank you. Thank
1: you for having us. Looking forward to it.
0: Yeah. So I, I want to start by asking each of you, when it comes to the way that energy in the world is produced and consumed, what is the nature of the problem? How is the current consumption of, of energy and production of energy wrong? What's wrong about it? And what is wrong about the ongoing efforts to to change it? Uh, doomberg, let's let's
1: start with you, Professor Keane. big fan of your work. A pleasure to be here with you, and Jack welcome uh, great great to be back with you as well. So um, I'll begin by saying that um, at its core, energy is life," which is a phrase that we have used since the beginning of Doomberg, and uh, quite literally. Um, Your standard of living is defined by how much energy you get to waste because disorder is spontaneous. And uh, the human endeavor is a constant, unrelenting struggle against the forces of entropy. And so um, one of the main challenges with the ongoing energy debate is this um, perhaps lack of a realization of just how important energy is. And I would say that um, we're big fans of Professor Keene's approach to try to incorporate the primary uh, critical, important uh, nature of energy into economic models. Um, The big question of course is, is, um, if we have decided as a society that we would like to reorient our economy around minimizing carbon emissions, um, there needs to be something in the numerator as well, which is the total standard of living we wish to allocate to the population. And optimizing that ratio of the total standard of living um, that we can produce for people divided by our carbon emissions in our view um, should be the um, function by which policy decisions are made and then i would close by saying um, through that lens especially when you consider sort of um, initial energy investments up front in order to uh, produce primary forms of energy that aren't fossil fuel um, there's very very few paths if any to significant decarbonization that do not involve a substantial renaissance of nuclear power Um, and so um we have been critical of the manner in which ESG policies have been implemented. If we sort of had to prioritize our critiques, we would say that um, wind is, is far less viable and, and suitable for our policy uh, suite of options than solar. But um, both are a distant second to nuclear, a uh, second and third to nuclear, which we believe uh, has to be at the, at the right dead in the center of uh, our, envir- our energy policy going forward. So with that, I'll turn it over to uh, Professor Keene.
2: My perspective has always been that economic theory completely ignores the role of energy and uh, I finally worked out how to bring energy into the uh, the models that economists build of uh, production uh, from the simple insight uh, that occurred to me walking through a friend's house one day another research on energy and that was that labor where that energy is a corpse and capital without that energy is a sculpture so whether it's energy is a vital input to both humans and to the machines that we've built, uh, that are ne- necessary for the production to occur. And with zero energy in, you get zero goods and services out the other end. And I've been then working on how to bring energy uh, more properly into how economists think about uh, the production system. But the consequence of the blindness that economists in particular have had towards energy that we've got to the stage where we're using far too much to support, far too much exploitation of the planet's resources, and we're going to be forced to go backwards and the extent to which we need to go backwards is emphasised when you take a look at the relationship between energy and GDP. And you might as well use the same word because the correlation between energy and GDP uh, over the last 50 or 60 years is pretty much 0.99. And the correlation between change in energy and change in GDP at the global level, I like can actually get that accurately, that's 0.86. So in other words, what we call GDP basically transformed energy we have no awareness of that in our policy making. And what we have ended up doing by exalting uh, continuous GDP growth is continuous exploitation of available energy to the point where what we're consuming is destroying the biosphere. It'll survive. We won't necessarily ourselves survive. And we have to drastically reduce our energy consumption and reduce our load on the biosphere. And that's the last thing that politicians and economists are thinking about. So I'm trying to, I think basically we've gone 30 years uh, past, maybe 40 years past what was sustainable on the planet. And therefore, we're going to be, whether we like it or not, we're going to be forced to reduce both energy consumption and GDP.
0: Um, Professor Keen, I want, you know, because uh, energy is is life, you're, you have a thesis that I, I think uh, Doomberg will will react strongly to, which is that... Uh, climate change is going to wreck economic growth, and that mainstream economics uh, pr- is sort of pricing in economic growth to d- decline by a, a, a small amount. And you think, you know, looking at what the scientists are writing, that it could be a, a much bigger degree. So, paint the picture of if you know, coal, oil, natural gas, you just you know continues to, to, to uh, increase over up to 20, 20, uh, 2070 or twenty one hundred. What are going to be the economic damages, uh, uh, m- You know, not just the, the social damages, but, but particularly the economic uh, uh, damages?
2: Well, I mean, it depends whether you define an economy as sticks and stones and, and bows and arrows and hunting what's left of the animals on the planet. Uh, pardon me being a bit uh, facetious there, but... If we continue economic growth at the rate that we're doing, and, and, and that therefore means continuing energy consumption, continuing dumping carbon dioxide into the atmosphere, because it be today renewable sources or non-fossil fuel sources of energy are still less, far less than 20% of total energy usage. Uh, if we continue pumping up the 80% that is fossil fuel based, uh, then climate change will intervene. And will destroy the capacity to have a sedentary civilization, which is what we've been based in for the last twelve thousand years. We've forgotten that we were actually a nomadic species. Okay? We we uh so our hunters and gatherers didn't stay in one spot, uh didn't necessarily build large structures. We've done that for twelve thousand years and taken it as normality, uh, but that's relied upon a stable climate, which doesn't cause massive storms, massive uh, a disturbance to uh, uh, to plants and animals, and we've now triggered druma- the fastest rate of change in the climate of the, of the planet. Apart from events like you know the the meteor strike that wiped out the dinosaur, that's about the only thing that happened faster than the damage we're doing to the biosphere in the geological record. So, as we do that, uh, we, we, we rely upon being able to have sedentary civilizations to live the lifestyles we do. And we have now unleashed such a degree of climate change, such a, in such a rapid speed, uh, that that sedentary civilization is likely to be eliminated. And so, um, if it does happen, of course, well, there goes GDP, there goes everything. So that's why I'm, I'm, I'm sort of putting this in, in, in really existential terms. Uh, letting the temperature rise as much as we have is an existential threat to human civilization, and yet we've treated it courtesy of the garbage. And that's being polite, the garbage that neoclassical economists have published on climate change. uh, We've regarded it as a trivial thing, which is going to hit us in 2100, 2200 at worst, uh, at at, at best. And, in fact, when I'm reading from climate scientists, we're likely to see truly catastrophic changes occurring, if we're lucky, in the next 30 30 years, maybe even earlier than that. And that, therefore, the the climate change, which existential climate change, is likely to occur in the lifetimes of most people listening to this show?
1: So I, I would say that we are slightly less uh, concerned about the catastrophic nature of the potential scenarios being modeled by climate scientists, although I would say we tend to try to stay in our lane and focus on optimizing that equation of, of standard of living divided by carbon emissions. I would say that I'm short the, um, the potential Dastardly impacts of climate change, and we're long human ingenuity and technological capabilities to adapt to it, especially when faced with what Professor Keen would characterize as existential threats. Because when we are faced with existential threats, we tend to remove a lot of the red tape and a lot of the uh, the um, friction that exists in our sort of weirdly designed uh, government uh, corporate um, biosystem. I guess take to take a, to, to take a uh, an interesting metaphor for what Professor Keen just said, um, but. Regardless, um, if we just take Professor Keen's prognosis as an axiom, which I'm happy to do for the purposes of this discussion, then the question becomes, what should we do about it? Um, And that's where we get back to... um, And by the way, when we say um, we take as an axiom that we should be reorienting our economy around CO2 emissions, we get a lot of heat from our subscribers because they they think that we should be um, going full Alex Epstein, I guess. Um, But we we have decided that that's not... um, the types of work that we would like to publish so we just take as an axiom that climate change uh, is something to be worried about and that we should be minimizing our co2 emissions um, the challenge becomes once you incorporate the numerator then you very quickly incorporate politics and i was struck as i'm listening to professor keen um, about the fact that the economy itself is oriented around growth and the moment we can't then we have to have a major debt reset because literally we're swimming in debt that is dependent upon growth And one of the challenges with great economic resets, of course, is they lead to significant political upheaval. And so um, those are my sort of preliminary thoughts listening to what the good professor just said.
0: And and Dunberg, sorry, remind us, uh, in the denominator is carbon emissions. What is in the numerator?
1: The total standard of living that we can produce and hopefully equitably share across the population. Um, Right. So
0: many agreements Um, between you both. I think the uh, source of disagreement is Professor Keene thinks that the denominator emissions will severely affect the numerator uh, uh, living conditions. Uh, whereas you think that you know that that factor exists, but uh, you, as you say, you're less concerned about it. I, well, I, think I would say
1: let's take a step back. So there's energy use, and then there's the additional resources that are consumed as a consequence of people having access to abundant energy. Um, the Earth is bombarded with many orders of magnitude more energy than we could possibly need if we could figure out a way to harness it, which is one of the reasons why. We are relatively pro-solar, in particular, pro-investigating solar technologies that may um, circumvent the intermittency challenge that existing solar technologies introduce to grids when they are introduced to such grids. Um, also, there is more than enough um, visible material on, under the earth and economically accessible in order to basically displace a significant chunk of our primary energy needs using nuclear power. The reason we don't today are largely political. There is no serious technological challenges to the vast rollout of nuclear power so I think the, the humankind's ability to access sufficient primary energy is is more a question of politics than it, than even technology or finances um, but having said that I'd be curious to to learn if we all had abundant energy what would be the next sort of zero in the geometric mean of resources we'd run out of that would be necessary for society to thrive I I don't know that there are all that many although um, I'm curious to get the professor's opinion on it. Well,
0: Professor can you can respond to, to whatever you want, but uh, I also would like to ask you about uh, the Green New Deal. What? What? Is, how do you envision a Green New Deal?
2: Okay. Well, the, the, the most vital thing is we have to radically re- reduce the level of income inequality in our society. So if there's going to be a genuine Green New Deal, then it isn't just the government putting forward something which is an you know, anagram of uh, what happened in the 1930s. It's uh, that if we if we reduce our pressure on the planet to the point at which human civilization is compatible with a sustainable biosphere roughly in the state of the Anthropocene, uh, then that burden can't fall on the poor. There was a recent, uh, very, very recent, last week I think it was, the British Office of National uh, Statistics did a survey and reported the results of it and found that 24% of the British population was unable to keep warm in November and December. Now, if you uniformly, if you if you try to uh, cope with the uh, the need to reduce energy consumption uh, by putting up the price of energy, then that twenty four percent will come seventy percent or more, and you won't have sustainable societies. The people who have to wear the burden of less energy consumption are the rich, not the poor. And that's both within countries and between. But I'm I'm working on the within countries because I I simply regard international agreements as a way of managing not to do anything. Uh, and I think that's where the fossil fuel companies like them as well. So I think you've got to start this at the national level. Um, and uh, with the with the you know incredibly distorted income distribution we have, uh, the, the substantial proportion of our energy consumption is consumed by a tiny proportion of the population. And if that continues, then we'll have a breakdown of society. So we have to find another way of distributing uh, access to energy and also access to to, to basic commodities to to be able to maintain civilization over the next 20 or 30 years.
1: Professor is correct in diagnosing what I believe is a critical problem in society that spans well beyond energy, which is income inequality. Um, And I believe in the US in particular, which is where we are. Uh, Domained, um, the problem seems to be getting much worse, and uh, the politics are broken, and we have documented that um, in some of our pieces that don 't focus on energy but instead focus on the bureaucracy and the grift and the corruption and the um, getting what you can while they 're getting is good mindset on Wall Street today and the complete disassociation between the financialization of everything and the uh, performance of underlying companies like this is not this is not signs these are not signs of a healthy economy, society or or political ethos. And um, I think it's asking a lot of the Green New Deal to simultaneously solve our energy problems while also addressing um, inequality. Um, I would view them as as probably more modular and separate challenges, um, but that's just my view. And and I would say the biggest challenge with the Green New Deal is uh, much like the professor has correctly assessed that uh, economics is missing energy, um, the proponents of the Green New Deal are missing the upfront energy costs of implementing the technologies that they are funding. And um, one of the most hotly debated and hyper-political numbers in the scientific community, of course, is the energy return on energy invested and, the, and in particular, the energy payback period for alternative technologies. Um, and so, um, it, it, for example, we believe through our calculations and analysis, and we've published a full piece on this, that uh, in most places of the world, it takes about five years for solar to pay back the energy that goes into creating the panels. Um, the production of polysilicon is one of the most energy intense industrial processes on the planet, if not the most energy intense And that energy has to come from somewhere. And so, um, you know, the, the, the sort of circular argument here um, that we have to sort of um, that we can shift our energy away from fossil fuels without spending the fossil fuels necessary to do it um, is one of the things that I think frustrates people. Uh, when they look at the speed with which or the lack of speed with which uh, we are transforming. As, as Professor Keene said, I do believe that fossil fuels still account for somewhere around 83% of our total primary energy. Um, and, and as we shift into alternative technology, the amount of energy we have to put up front um, is is like a discounted cash flow model, but except for joules. And, and with solar and wind um, it does take a fair amount of time to pay back. With nuclear, the best estimates we've seen is it takes six weeks of of time to pay back the energy cost of building a nuclear facility, um, w- which means you could shift a lot more of your primary energy quicker uh, if you had the political will around nuclear. And so uh, I, I totally agree. In- income inequality is one of the most significant challenges. Hard-pressed to see how a Green New Deal solves it, but I, I'm open, open to all potential solutions.
0: Private industry sort of uh, ESG... Green policies are we're going to invest in the S and P five hundred, but we're not going to invest in Exxon Mobil. And that sort of uh, let's call it green investing is only diverting capital away from fossil from energy producing companies. It's not directing them towards green green energy production. But whereas uh, the Green New Deal is the government funding a, a mass production of, of energy. So in theory, Doomberg, and the principle of energy is life. Uh, the Green New Deal promotes the production of energy. You just think it's not. The way that some people think about it is, is not realistic. Is that, is that fair well, to say, Doom? Well,
1: I would say in order to produce the energy alternatives on offer, um, we need to divert existing energy that we are producing today in order to pay that T equals zero energy cost. So, for example, we said this in a piece. Um, Henlock Semiconductor is one of the last three producers of polysilicon in the U.S. China has all but taken over that entire supply chain. They are by far the largest consumer of electricity in the state of Michigan. Um, they swap the chemical infrastructure here and the automotive assembly facilities here. Um, to get to seven nines purity on polysilicon requires an unthinkable amount. It's just it's a hugely energy intense process. That energy must come from somewhere. So somewhere um, on the other side of the outlet um, exists a power facility that's producing electricity, um, and so. That penalty uh, upfront payment, um, if we're not, you know, it's not a, it's not a perpetual motion machine, of course, and so um, that energy must be diverted. And if you divert energy, of course, it it causes the remaining uh, energy to be far more expensive and scarce. And as we know, the price elasticity of demand for primary fuels uh, is in, is I mean, it's incredibly inelastic. As we've seen, prices in Europe going from ten dollars a million BTU natural gas to 100 hundred back down to sixteen or eighteen or whatever they're trading at today. Um, there it's all just molecules of methane, but th- these things swing by orders of magnitude on the smallest um, supply imbalances, either long or short, and that sh- tells you that you know that paying for that upfront energy cost of the transition will be quite expensive. What do you think about that, professor?
2: Again, we're pretty much pretty much in agreement this if you're going to increase dramatically increase the proportion of energy generated by non-fossil fuel system, then you've got to build a large number of plants that will do that, nuclear plants, solar, wind, uh, wave, any form of technology. And I really think it's basically throw everything we can into the mix uh, to try to achieve that, even if the long term might not be sustainable in any of them. We need to do something now. So I've I know, like I've got a colleague, like Simon Maitchell, for example, who that we don't have the minerals to go across to a fully solar and wind-based system uh, because that really is a minerals economy, and not an oil economy, uh, and and that that uh, could mean okay, we can't do it on a sustainable basis. But I've got a, an attitude about it. it. This is an emergency. It's like it's World War Two on steroids, uh, so you have to do it as fast as you can. Now that uh, you can't do that while you maintain consumption uh on on the same basis for the non-energy sector uh and this is again if you go back to the world war Two, one reason so much so many resources were mobilized for the war effort is because of rationing of consumption you you no longer went shopping you went to your ration card to the shops and got what was designated as a, as a reasonable ration for you an individual or a family and that's uh that's why there has a a huge redirection of the energy resources from consumption to war, uh, war production. And we have to have a similar thing. So we, as well as putting the energy in, uh, we have to also reduce the energy consumption by consumers. And then on, on a, given the scale that I think we're going to face, on a grand scale, uh, would, would, we might regard World War II uh, rations with envy at a collective level if we actually uh, see the sort of thing I'm seeing in in the academic literature. And the one thing I'd like to talk about too, by the way, is the sort of thing that that scientists are actually saying is feasible to happen. Because I think what scientists are seeing as the potential form of climate change and what turns up in people's general discussion of it are two entirely different things. And it's the the fact that I've read the science literature and I've seen what some scientists, not all, but some specialists are saying, scares the bejesus out of me, and I wish with the same stuff we got through to policymakers, we might actually treat this more seriously.
0: And, yeah, well, I, I, Steve, yeah, I don't think you'll hear a lot of environmentalists talking the way you do. So I, I, I appreciate that. You, you think that the mass-scale deployment of the production of green energy is going to require so much existing energy that it will uh, entail the re- reduction of consumption. In other, in other words, it will be a war on okay uh can you steve could you just give us some rough numbers i'm sure the numbers will make a lot more sense to doomberg and you than than to me but
2: like i'm not working in the numbers anything like i'd like to because i'm super busy fighting neoclassical garbage on on climate change so you know my time has been proved uh proving why nordhaus should not have been rather than getting the nobel prize for economics nordhaus should have been refused to be refused graduation from primary school his work is that bad Okay, so most of my time is pulling apart that sort of work. I haven't gone through and so what are the energy numbers? If that's where you should get Simon Marshall uh, rather than me on that particular point. Uh, but, I'll, but what I'll do is I'll just give an example of the type of climate change literature that I'm uh, seeing from yeah, genuine climate scientists and why they are scared in a way that the public itself is not and the politicians aren't. And that's work of J.G. Anderson, who happens to be Professor of Atmospheric Chemistry at Harvard University and was the person who discovered the hole in the ozone layer over Antarctica and was involved in the campaign to successfully close that hole, relatively speaking. Uh, Long story short, he has a publicly available paper, I think from 2017 or 2018. I'll actually look up the title. It's called Coupling Free Radical Catalysis, Climate Change and Human Health. And it's in 2018. There's no no paywall on that paper. And what he argues is that, when we lose the Arctic summer sea ice, and that's a question of when not if, the temperature imbalance between the equator and the pole will drop dramatically. That will mean that storms which occur on the west, on the American plains, which currently are limited to the troposphere, will break through to the stratosphere. This is already happening, by the way, uh, but not on the scale that he sees happening after we lose Arctic summer sea ice. That will transfer, trans, as well as transferring moisture, uh, to the stratosphere, which is currently very, very dry. It will also transfer chroma, a chlor- chlorine and bromide. And in a catalytic process with moisture and chlorine and bromide, that will increase the rate of destruction of the ozone layer by a factor of 100. Now, that happens. The north, the, 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 well, certainly the northern hemisphere and quite likely both hemispheres become, if not, in, if not in, uninhabitable by humans, They become impossible for humans to go outdoors during daylight. Now, that's not what people are talking about. They're talking about sea level rise and Mm -hmm. things of that nature. I'm sorry. This is much more serious than that. And unless you realize we face existential threats, then you treat this as something we can approach gradually. And I think that's a huge mistake.
0: Yeah, and you, earlier you referred to a Nordhaus economist who won a Nobel Prize uh, in 2018 for his work on uh, sort of economic growth as a result of climate change. And he he, he said that 87% of US economic activity took place in carefully controlled environments, little affected by climate change. So, oh, I'm buying something on Amazon. I'm inside. You know, Yeah, Steve, yeah that's right. The roof will save you. What's wrong with that? Why is, why is that, that thinking so wrong
2: in your opinion? Well, for a start... that's a kid's understanding of what climate change is. Climate is weather, okay? And you can actually find, like, the 2014 IPCC report written by one of his uh, acolytes, Richard Toll and a few others, I uh, had a frequently asked, questions, frequently asked question 10.3, I think in a working group two or three, I've forgotten which actual working group, and it said, how will other industries be affected? And it's repeated this whole thing. Other industries such as manufacturing and services occur in carefully controlled environments that are not particularly exposed to climate change. Uh, and that's the whole economic literature is like that. Uh, uh, trivial understanding of what climate is. And this partly, I think you can actually blame it on the simplistic definition most people have of climate versus weather, that weather is what you experience when you walk outside and climate is the average of what you're experiencing when you walk outside over a longer period of time, like a few months. Uh, and, and that is that just basically says, well, the average temperature is going to get hotter. What's the problem? And and that is a if you, that's your level of understanding, it shouldn't be working in climate change now what climate change really means and this is why i raised the example of uh, of anderson's research on ozone is a change in the structure of the, distrib- of, the of the the manner in which more uh, air air and water are transported around the planet and what that does to uh, the capacity to maintain life on the planet and you're changing the structure of that circulation pattern so anderson who's an expert on ozone simply glossed over one part of his argument which was we're going to lose the three circulation cells in the northern hemisphere rather than the, the Hadley cell from zero to 30 degrees north of the equator uh, and then the cell from 30 to 60 and the polar from 60 to 90. So said, we'll break down to one cell. And then he went straight into what his expertise is, which is ozone. Now, if he happens to be right about the first part, then that means the entire structure of the circulation of moisture and heat uh, in the northern hemisphere will be screwed. Okay. Because the, the temperate zone where most of our population lives and most of our agriculture takes place is temperate because it's a the circulation cell of 30 to 60 degrees with you know, mild weather. You've got the hot the zero to 30 and the cold at 60 to 90. Instead, they would disappear. You'd have an equable, they call it an equable climate. That's when the average temperature of the, uh, of the Arctic rises to 20 degrees Celsius. But that means everything we've done for agriculture gets scrambled. Now, I've seen other scientists using a complex systems model saying they don't expect that change to occur to the, the, the loss of the three cells to 2170. So if, if I'm not saying Anderson is, you know, definitive and everybody agrees with him and so on. Uh, but that that's his expertise. And I'm, I'm willing here to, I do concede to people who are experts. Economists are not experts. They're experts on a bullshit theory of the economy. They're not experts on the economy, let alone other issues they inject themselves into. But looking at that as this huge structural change, and if you consider that's what we're going to face, then it's no longer a case of 1% or 2% of GDP. It's the very capacity to have uh, a sedentary civilization that's a threat.
0: Hey there, sorry to interrupt. Announcement. Blockworks is hosting an event called Permissionless in September. It's a crypto event, it's in Austin, Texas. We did Permissionless in 2022. It was the biggest and best DeFi event in the world and this year lightning will be striking twice. Historically, our ticket prices have gone up about 10 times from the day the tickets go live to the day before the event. If you're like me and bad at math, that's 900%. So it might be savvy for attendees to consider buying tickets now rather than later. If you're listening to this and you're saying, hey Jack, I'm not really into this whole crypto thing. I want to hear about the Fed. I want to hear about the dollar, Bretton Woods three, four, 5, I hear you. I'm not telling you to buy a ticket and the interview will resume momentarily. However, if you are into the crypto thing and permissionless is something you might want to attend, what I'm saying is there's no time like the present because tickets will go up and if history is any guide, prices will go up a ton. Anyway, the link is in the description and you can get an additional 10% off by using code GUIDANCE10. Thanks. Let's get back to the interview. doomberg, you might want to comment on your view to that, which probably is different. Uh, earlier, you also said that you were happy to take uh professor Keen's framework as an axiom that okay if we continue uh, on the path we're going in 2070 you know we're, we're, our economic growth will will be uh, destroyed uh, um and it we will you know permanently d- d- be, be divorced it'll be it'll be very bad for for life uh, to use your language um so so yeah I, your, your comment on that as well as you know if you take uh professor keene's you know understanding of, of the science as as axiom is he right about the Green New Deal? Is it the case that economics uh, and really finance always puts a premium on the short term and is really unable to think beyond a few quarters, let alone uh, decades, and that you know, uh, finance assigns values to things? Oh, this company is worth... X, this company is worth Y, but what really is the value of the entire you know, atmosphere? Is, is it possible that finance and, and you know econ- um, economists are undervaluing
1: that? So <clears throat> lots to unpack. Let me take a couple of things um, in the order that they're in my head right now. So first of all, um, I would caution against the use of any particular expert's um, research to reshape society without having a pretty careful second, third, fourth, and fifth look, and I'm not saying that Professor Keene is suggesting that we do otherwise. Um, as a trained scientist and uh, someone who has worked in the science sector, uh, uh, in industry for several decades, including on uh, renewable energy topics like wind and solar, um, I will say that um, the professor probably um, overrates the quality of the literature in the scientific field. There's just as much garbage in the science world as there is in the economics literature. No, that, there's not.
2: Sorry, sorry. Uh, e- wow. e- economics wins the garbage contest hands down. <laughs> well,
1: I can tell you that um, I've seen plenty of it in my career. And I'm not, just, I'm not casting a dispersion on the particular paper because I've not read it. And also, I will say upfront, I am not a climate expert. Um, and so I don't like to, to take positions uh, where I'm personally not an expert. I would just say broadly, one needs to be careful in taking individual papers, you know, there is a huge crisis in the scientific community around reproducibility um, and all the, all the same sort of human shortfalls exist in the science community, if if not worse than in many other sectors as well. So with that, oh, yeah, aside, that,
2: that, that yeah, I, I do yeah, agree. Yeah, yeah. Yeah.
1: Putting that aside, let's just, t- again, for the purposes of this discussion, take as an axiom that we should be urgently removing the amount of CO2 we're emitting um, uh, while we are operating our economy today. Um, the question is, what should we do about it? So it's fascinating to, to me to just take take a point of view of just how far we are away politically from Professor Keene's prognosis, which is um, a perfect example is Joe Biden, who is an old school politician, um, panicked in the U.S. when the price of gasoline reached five and six dollars at the pump and immediately backflipped, um, started releasing one million barrels a day from the Strategic Petroleum Reserve, which had the the desired impact of lowering the price of oil, which by economics, I think even Professor Keen would agree, had the uh, impact of stimulating the demand for oil. Um, and and if people can have access to cheap energy, history has shown that everyone everywhere wants a higher standard of living and they're going to waste more of it if they're given access to it. And so at the prospect of five or $6 gasoline, um, Biden did a complete backflip and, um, and it was very political, which is totally fine. He's an old school politician. I understand the motivation. But the prospect of getting wiped out in the midterms caused a complete reversal of what environmentalists would claim is necessary behavior in order for us to address climate change. And then the last thing I would say um, even though um, Professor Keene did say that he is more concerned about intra country versus inter country, um, the emerging middle class of Asia is going to swamp. Um, any efforts that we have over here unless we convince them to grow their economies in a zero carbon way. And what we have seen uh, as a consequence of the energy crisis that started in Europe is that when push comes to shove, um, the Chinese and the Indians and the Indonesians are going to burn as much coal as they can to keep the lights on. And so uh, it's a real tough problem. And if the professor is right, and we take that as an axiom, I would say, looking at the politics, um, brace for impact because we're going to run the experiment. <laughs>
2: so, you know, for sure. I mean, that, this is the whole thing. Like, I, I also uh, my, my I have an extended family which is Thai through my wife who's Thai. And, um, I, I you know, every, if you, you don't put a building up in Thailand unless you whack air conditioning in it. And the, because the temperature going to be rising, then people are going to be more air conditioning, which means you need more power, which means more coal powered power stations. And if you start mm-hmm. having, if we actually see things like uh, the, you know, the disaster scenario in Kim Stanley Robinson's Ministry for the Future, which is a wet bulb catastrophe in, in northern India. <laughs> and you're not going to be telling people to turn the coal fired power stations down when air conditioning you're only keeps you alive. And so the the, the the actual likely response we're going to have to a climate catastrophe is to increase power consumption.
1: Yeah, I agree. And that's this is why we end up coming back to nuclear power. Um, if you sort by capacity to produce energy divided by carbon emissions, and especially the payback period, I think um, nuclear power is the only way to go. And I would say one of the great mysteries of our time is the uh, reflexive opposition to nuclear power that we see amongst uh, most sort of progressive environmentalists, uh, especially here in the United States. And I think they do themselves no no favors um, because it just it just um, it screams of unseriousness uh, if like what we just wrote a piece about the NRC in the US and, and how despite the near unanimous political support to keep Diablo Canyon going post 2025, the very federal uh, regulatory agency uh, designed with uh, overseeing the industry uh, is, is working to shut it down. Um, and so we're just not serious. And so um, if we're not serious and things evolve the way Professor Keen worries, um, then we're in big trouble. Uh, if they don't evolve in the way that Professor Keen worries, uh, we still have other challenges. I would say, um, you know, that the concept of expected value, what's the probability of something happening times the consequence of it happening? Um, you know, the probability need not be very high uh, for Professor Keene's scenarios to be really meaningful. Um, I, I would, again, as I started this saying, we're a little, we're, we would be short that level of alarmism and we would be long humanity's ability to respond when pushed. We just haven't been pushed yet, uh, clearly, as, as shown by President Biden's um, you know, pre-election maneuvering around energy.
0: So uh, Steve, it sounds like uh Doomberg values uh, when it comes to renewables, solar over wind and nuclear uh being the best, the, the most efficient ability to, to to produce power. Um, do you agree with that? And do you think it matters? I mean, let's say there's a Green New Deal that passes, but all of it goes to offshore wind. And, you know, we spend trillions of dollars for green energy, which you know, you think is good, but it it's in a way that you know they could have it could have gone to solar or, or nuclear, and that was a, a better way. Um, and maybe you can also comment on uh, you know natural gas replacing coal, which is less dirty, more green, but still you know, does produce a lot of uh, CO two and methane.
2: Yeah, like I'm, I'm most of my supporters are engineers, and I would have been a physicist if I hadn't had six years of velocity year physics teachers at school. So I've had a fair bit of exposure to nuclear. Uh, uh, technology over the time. And I was somebody who was in an anti nuclear war, obviously, in my youth, uh, and at the nuclear power stations. But my engineer friends have convinced me that the, the most recent uh, generation of things with, with water moderated reactors, sintered fuel, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, we're still talking about, lith- uh, about, uh, thorium, though that'll, you know, it's huge development lag in getting that done, but even uranium based, uh, power stations could be produced much more rapidly and, and are much safer, uh, than the general population believes they are. And certainly than the most of the green, uh, part of the population believe they are. So I, what my attitude is with if, if we, if we need to radically, rapidly roll out non fossil fuel based energy, then the faster thing we could do is ramp up the current mass production systems for wind and solar uh, because they exist. We don't yet have mass production systems for nuclear power stations, uh, so I would say, my attitude would be throw we government created money. Forget about this; spend by the private sector. The private sector may be financed by government money to get it done, but you won't have the private banks paying money to. Nobody's going to be making a profit out of this. Uh, because it's such a radical change in production. You're not doing it for demand anyway, and you may be forced to reduce output. So we have a huge financial sector issue as well to address. But the government could fund the scale of activity as they did back in the Second World War with the Liberty ships, you know, going from virtually zero destroyers in the American to thousands of destroyers. I think it was ultimately, um, that very, very rapid transition. It is a similar thing for nuclear, but nuclear will have a long lag just with, with, with uh, simply because we haven't yet got a manufacturing system for producing nuclear power plants. We do have manufacturing systems for, for wind and solar. So I'd say that the first thing is to get wind and solar ramped up dramatically, and then while you're doing that, also ramp up your capacity to produce nuclear power stations, and you'd be as as, as fast as possible to reduce your carbon consumption at the same time, while that will be causing a spike in your usage of fossil fuels to produce Non-fossil fuel power stations, so that's why the rationing at the consumption level is also necessary.
1: So yes, I would say, um, in our view, the rate limiting constraint for nuclear power is not um, lack of workable reactor designs. So the can-do system in Canada is pretty much off the shelf and and scalable. The the rate limiting issue for nuclear is is politics, um, as it pertains to the other available sort of non-carbon, quote unquote, sources of electricity. Um, the big challenge with wind is there's a lot of moving parts, whereas at least with solar, it's stationary and uh, you're producing you know, a DC. Uh, with wind, you have these big splitting blades that then of course um, have motors inside of them that require lubrication. And these blades are huge, huge sources of energy as well, although much less than polysilicon on a pound for pound basis. And then there's always the challenge of, of recycling these things on the back end of their life Um, which there has been some progress in that regard. But I mean, these these blades come from specialized carbon fiber, epoxy resins. um, And most of this stuff is very energy intense and requires fossil fuels. And so that has to come from somewhere for sure. Um, And as we say, um, there are no solutions. There are only trade-offs. And so we have to decide which of the trade-offs we're willing to accept. Um, And I would argue, um, or I would suspect, I guess, argue is too strong of a word, that the political popularity of rationing is is not going to be a winner uh, in in the West, at least, Um, perhaps in in more dictatorial societies where they can sort of impose those things from above. Um, But I suspect based on Biden's behavior in 2022, um, we're nowhere near the level of political support needed to, to even begin discussing the level of rationing that the professor thinks is needed to avert the catastrophe. And so that's why I said earlier, um, brace for impact because I suspect um, we are going to just hurdle uh, over the line and we're gonna run the experiment and we'll all wake up one day and, and determine whether the, uh, you know, the, the earth is irreversibly changed and then it'll be uh, forced upon us. Um, nature won't allow us to continue uh, at this pace. Um, so that's my view.
0: And, and, and Doomburg, so uh, the professor uh, laid out his vision uh, um, with, with a lot of clarity. What do you what would you like to see happen within the energy sector, both uh, in the, the private sector as well as the government sector? So it sounds like you want a, a lot of building a, of nuclear sure. reactors. Uh, is the private sector sufficient to do that? Or, you know, as in Professor Keene's vision, does it need help from the, the government to, to have oh, a, a, well, mass
1: scale? It needs, at a minimum, the government to stop hurting. Um, so, we, we've laid out a four-part plan that if we were king, um, that we think best optimizes the equation of standard of living divided by carbon emissions, and that's uh, uh, part one is a, a renaissance of nuclear power, which was already discussed, so I won't belabor it. Um, part two is systematically replacing coal with natural gas where we can. Um, and part three is reinvigorating the U.S. and Western solar industry. Right now, it is completely controlled and monopolized by the Chinese, leveraging dirty coal and slave labor. And we think that we could um, easily take back that supply chain, we used to have it. I was in the industry when the Chinese took it over. We saw what they did. They stole our intellectual property and they they used slave labor and cheap dirty coal to flood the market with artificially cheap solar panels, which put the Western producers out of business. I think you could have a whole series of polysilicon plants in uh, the natural gas fields of of the US and uh, leverage natural gas to make um, solar here. And then fourth, um, if batteries are going to be a constraint and we believe they are, there's simply not enough battery materials we should be reorienting our obsession uh, with full electric vehicles uh, away from that construct and towards um, getting as much fossil fuel abatement per kilogram of battery possible, which necessarily means we should be looking at uh, plug-in hybrids and soft hybrids uh, to displace the the, the full internal combustion engines that we have on the road today. Uh, We simply do not have enough battery materials and the price of lithium cobalt and nickel in the early days of this uh, transformation Uh, is proof positive of that, and uh, we are simply not opening enough new minds to get the materials necessary to do the transformation as envisioned. And so um, I think with that four-part plan, which is pretty prudent and probably politically popular um, and totally feasible, technically, uh, we would be at least getting the the conversation started with society uh, in a way that that has some meaningful potential to make an impact.
0: Professor, what do you think of the Doomberg, let's call it the the Doomberg plan uh, for energy. What are the strengths and weaknesses?
2: It, it, it's well, it, it's it's a, it's a good plan. So I'm not going to. I say that in general, and it, a plan which recognises how rapidly we have to reduce carbon is absolutely vital. And a plan which recognises to reduce carbon, we've got to use carbon, is also sensible. So I'm, you know, I'm quite happy about the overall proposal. Um, I, I still think that the. You know, my worry is we're, we're, not, we're not going to do anything. It's the politics is the main problem, and it isn't just the politicians. It's also the public because you don't accept as radical a change in your lifestyles as will be necessary for um, addressing climate change until something happens to you like the Germans invade Poland and you have a quarter of a million of your troops about to be slaughtered at Dunkirk. Okay, That's what tends to wake you up. Well, I'm I've, I've coming back to the Winston Churchill and Dunkirk analogy all the time here because, uh, you know, he, he was warning about the dangers of Hitler and nobody was listening to him until you're about to lose a quarter of a million troops. Um, and then the seriousness took over and then people accepted the change from, you know, um, peace in our time type attitudes to this is an existential struggle for survival. Um, so I don't think a population is going to be ready to accept anything like what I think is necessary until after it becomes necessary. And then the question is, what damage will that climate change do to our capacity to respond? So, so I see us I, having to make these decisions in a a, a post-disaster uh, so setting, we, not pre, but post. Funny and that that's you use
1: uh, Dunkirk because we just used that analogy in one of our pieces to describe the speed and efficiency with which the Germans retreated to the coal mines uh, at the first sign of an energy shortage uh, getting ahead of uh, and averting, it looks like, thankfully, catastrophe um, this winter. And, and that is, again, another sort of data point about just the distance in the sort of political zeitgeist uh, for, from where we are today for, to where the professor thinks we need to go, because at the first sign of stress, Germany um, brought back on something like 16 gigawatts of coal power, and it has one of the dirtiest grids uh, in Europe today. And luckily, the weather has been warmed, ironically, um, saved by global warming and, uh, and, and catastrophe has been averted. But th- there is a, a huge political chasm to cross here. And that's why I think um, uh, systematically doing it in the way that we describe the four-part plan is, is taking politics into account um, and, and, and would probably work. Although I would say we ascribe uh, almost no probability of it actually coming to pass. Um, we, we have, um, we're not, uh, we're not so delusioned as to think that our political challenges are are knots that are easily cut. And, um, ultimately, um, crisis is, is either going to occur, which causes the political change, um, needed, or it doesn't occur. And we keep on our merry way. Um, and we, we are going to find out one way or the other.
0: In both of your plans, uh, both, both of your uh, uh, plans feature heavily the, the production of a new form of energy, because energy is life. Uh, I, I don't think either of you have so, so far mentioned, although Doomberg, I know you have a lot of thoughts about it, the uh, cutting off of energy production oh uh, this university giant endowment we're no longer investing in oil companies we just launched an ETF that doesn't invest in in coal uh, we're an activist investment fund and we're going on the board of ExxonMobil and we want them to sell some of their uh, you know oil fields to some extremely um, you know uh, to, to some private equity firm that I'm sure is is much less transparent with their carbon production um, so that they can buy buy windmills uh, what does you know what do you think about this? Instead of producing green energy, uh, ban, sort of banning or attempting to ban fossil uh, fuel production, Dunberg, I know you're quite severely opposed to it, Professor Keen. What do you what do you think of the uh, merits or potential pitfalls of this strategy?
2: I think we're going to be forced to, but the trouble is, uh, what's going to happen instead is Durnberg says when when the crisis hits, the first responsibility use more energy. And that's that, that, I'm living in Europe right now, so I've certainly seen. Uh, the uh, the panic reopening of coal mines because of the thought we were going to be uh, insufficient uh, gas to keep people warm during winter and was saved by the fact there's been a very warm winter you know, global warming saved us from the dangers of global warming. That won't happen during summer. so the question is what happens during summer you know if, if the global warming's around it won't be saving us from global warming and making it worse so more people want to use air conditioning units and and so on. Uh, if it actually causes droughts like it did in France, uh, last year, then maybe the, both the power coal-fired power stations and the nuclear will be unable to operate because they won't have a, they won't be able to use the moisture in the rivers because the rivers will be empty. Um, so there's, you know, we, we, we face all sorts of, of, uh, contradictory consequences from the situation we're in. And I think the, the only way we're going to survive is to rapidly get down to zero carbon and then reduce our footprint even further than that. Um, but that won't be an initial response. We're likely to bump up our carbon footprint initially. And then uh, if, if, if we cause you know the, the catastrophe that, that triggers people's realisation doesn't occur in Europe, then Europe will be more... In, or, energy consuming, more likely it will happen in Europe and then Asia will consume more energy. So we're still going to be adding fuel to the, to the to the global warming fire courtesy of putting more carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. And what I'd really like to see happening is the, the military wargaming, how to respond after a crisis happens depending on what the crisis is uh, because the complete lack of preparedness we had for COVID I think has just given us an idea of what we're going to be like with climate change, which will, you know, make COVID look like a picnic. Uh,
0: uh, Doomberg, the uh, professor said the word crisis. I, I know uh, you know you think there has been a, a global energy crisis over the, over the past year or so, particularly when energy prices, natural gas prices in, in Europe, absolutely skyrocketed, uh, you know, as as Russia cut off the supply of, of natural gas. Um, but but since then you know u s natural gas is down about seventy percent uh, from the peak European natural gas uh, the dutch price is down about eighty five percent from the peak oil down almost forty percent from peak coal prices is down uh, nearly been cut in half and of course, look, things move all the time but uh, does the moderation in hydrocarbon prices uh, make you think that the energy crisis is uh, less acute? I mean, are you, you you know, the the storage in in Europe looks for natural gas looks pretty ample uh, to to, to my untrained eye at least, or would that be a mistake, you know, sort of imputing short-term price action to a a longer team uh, trend of what you perceive as underinvestment in in fossil fuels?
1: So let's take the underinvestment first, because I just want to answer that question and then I'll pivot to uh, where we are in the energy crisis. So, Um, The defund the fossil fuel movement is so profitable to the fossil fuel industry, one wonders whether it isn't a conspiracy, (laughs) like the uh, price last season demand, like what kills the commodity players is over overproduction. And when we have these cycles where um, everyone draws tangent lines to sine waves and thinks the good times are going to come and they invest in new facilities and then all those new facilities come online all at once. Um, We sit here today, oil is still $80 a barrel. That's right in the sweet spot for the old producers. Um, They have not invested in exploration and production or refining uh, in the West at least uh, to the extent that they need. And so prices remain elevated, profits remain high, and discipline is strong in the fossil fuel sector today. And all of this I believe is at least in part due to the defund the fossil fuel movement. Now, to your question about the energy crisis, the weather, um, we wrote a piece at the end of December called the Whims of Gaia. Um, We rolled the dice on the weather in in europe we they and um, they won and that would be that's a wonderful thing Um, and i would say that the price of coal coming well below the price of oil on an energy content basis is one of the milestones that we had called to say that the energy crisis is abating the energy crisis is abating Um, the energy crisis was real and it is now uh, much less real because of the weather Um, we're going to roll the dice again for one more winter at least and then it looks like the world will have enough Export, import, natural gas capacity to at least shave off the worst-case scenario risks of people huddling over wood stoves uh, in Berlin to get through the winter. That's a good thing. That's unabashedly a good thing. Um, And so, um, but let's look at the cost to have uh, evaded that crisis. It's half a trillion dollars of uh, subsidies, printed euros um, thrown into the uh, economy just to buy one year's worth of, of fossil fuels. Look, the Germans, to their credit, scoured the world. For every source of BTU, regardless of price or carbon footprint, and they assembled everything they needed to get through the winter, and they did. It came at the expense of retreating on their carbon policy, um, calling sort of bs on on some of their uh, the, the hypocrisy around the german greens and you know half a trillion dollars is half a trillion dollars, we could have built an awful lot of nuclear power facilities with that money um, if we had the political will to do so and but having said that. Um, Actions were taken. The crisis has been averted. I think we're on the downside of the crisis now, and we'll see what happens uh, coming up in the rest of the winter. Hopefully, it stays milder than the winter of
0: 23-24. And so there's been a bit of a, a sea change with uh, European governments, but as well as private industry investors. Uh, you know, They were under-investing, and you know, com- uh, hydrocarbon companies were making a lot of money. People were not buying them. They were still selling them uh, there, to me, at my eyes, it's, it appears there's a little bit of a, of a sea change. Given that you know you have natural gas producers that are losing money at current prices now, and they're unhedged for 2023, and the stocks are you know maybe down 30 or 40 percent from the all-time high. So I, it just goes to show that uh, you know investors really are not they don't believe anything. You know if if the price if the, if the price is right if 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 they think they're making money, uh, you know do do you think that Doomberg that the um, inve- investment ha- has changed given that i mean you know this is probably the most popular chart on twitter that the price of oil continues to decline but the investment uh in like something like the xle and etf that owned energy companies continues to go up is that uh does that show does that show to you that maybe you know people are investing a little bit more and production might go a little bit up
1: uh it probably says more about just how beaten down and downtrodden those stocks were you know in presenting charts you get to select when the chart begins and then when you compare on a go forward basis that can often tell a different story depending on your time timeframe. Um, I would say also just to be very clear, um, many natural gas producers in the US are actually oil producers and they produce their natural gas as associated gas. And so um, for the better part of a decade, natural gas was trading where it is now um, in the US and these companies still exist and, and did reasonably well until COVID and, and a lot of them went out of business. Um, the price of oil is still very elevated and at this price, um, especially with no real major new supply coming on stream. Um, the industry looks set to print a lot of cash. And so, um, you know, for a while, it, like coal producers were selling at less than one times cash flow. <laughs> one, one year's worth of cash flow was, was more than their total market cap. So they probably were a little um, thrown into the dustbin a little prematurely. And, and the, the reason that they haven't fallen as much uh, as, say, the underlying commodities have is because they probably had already fallen a lot. And they're um, and, and just doing a little bit better now. So, But we shall see, again, um, these are highly inelastic. And so literally in the same calendar year, we, we've seen the price of natural gas swing by a factor of six, not by 60%, but by a factor of six uh, in Europe. We've seen it swing by a factor of almost five in the U.S. You know, it wasn't that long ago we were at $10 per million BTU. And again, I think Biden panicked because heading into the winter, those elevated natural gas prices are going to be politically unpopular given the proportion of homes in the U.S. that heat their dwellings using natural gas. And, um, and so, you know, we, we, but the industry is investing in, in, in globalizing natural gas. I, I can tell you that at four or five dollars per million BTU, the, the marginal producer of natural gas in the U.S. is having a great time. Now it's below that today, but export numbers are still, you know, um, pretty strong. Um, and, and so we shall see. Um, these are all interconnected, of course. Um, you know, when natural gas went into crisis and LNG cargos became too expensive, the Chinese and everyone in Asia who couldn't get, the, or couldn't get or were reselling their natural gas to Europe at a, 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 to capture a profit uh, turned to coal, which is, by the way, why polysilicon prices skyrocketed because it's all made in China using coal. And so it's all interconnected. Um, and, and as the professor correctly states, the failure to account for energy and economic policy um, is, is, is a real problem both for economic policy and for science policy. Um, and, and the fact that natural gas exploding in Europe would cause polysilicon to explode in China might not be um, obvious to people, but it is obvious once you sort of follow the molecules and, and, and do the interconnective substitution potential here uh, in the market.
0: Hmm.
1: Um, professor, what, what do you make of, of, of Doomberg's, uh
0: theory that uh, sort of investment policies, uh, diverting investment away from fossil fuel production... Really, only increases their profitability because the production, you know, it, it's the, they're they're like Japanese fighting fish; they can't help themselves. And if if they don't, if they're not being funded to produce new projects, you know, the price of natural gas will spike, and that will actually be profitable for them. So, do do you think that they, you know, as an environmentalist, are they are those policies somewhat counterproductive or, or not as productive as? I mean, because there are people in the, in the, on, on Wall Street whose main job is to promote these policies, and you know, I'm of the belief that that's an inadequate solution to, to climate change. And I, I wonder if you agree.
2: Yeah, like I'd, I'd be nationalizing all of them. Okay. <laughs> uh, there's, 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 well past the point where they should be privately owned. Because as you say, if you restrict the supply because there's such inelastic demand for power without power, you can't live. Then bang, the price will go through the roof and they'll make a, they'll make a monster out of it. So it's time they stop making a mozza. So, you know, I would be nationalizing all fossil fuel companies, period. Um, you, you don't want innovation in fossil fuels anymore, okay? The days of innovation of fossil fuels for the, 18 to the 18, 1870s to the to the 1930s. Um, we don't want them anymore. We don't want profit to go to them. Uh, if the prices do go up, we want that to go to revenue that's going to create alternative power systems. So the best thing to do, wholesale nationalization of the entire fossil fuel industry. If I was in Biden's shoe, sure, I'd be doing it tomorrow. I mean, you're lucky I'm not an American.
0: <laughs> and, and Professor, uh, how do you think about the price of of oil? It, to to achieve your goals of of rapid decarbonization, do you need do you do you want the price of oil to be at two hundred dollars or at two dollars? Because at two hundred dollars, that will you know destroy demand for oil, but at the same time, uh, it will incentivize a, a ton of supply. But at two dollars, no you know no one's going to be investing in supply, but you know people are going to get even more addicted to oil as as consumers.
2: Well, I'd, I'd be, this, is, this is why I'm talking in terms of rationing, not the price system, and the whole we've been we've fooled ourselves to believe the price system behaves like a first year economic textbook. The first year economic textbook is totally irrelevant to how the economies actually function. But uh, yes, if you do, uh, because we are so dependent upon oil, upon energy in general, uh, if the working class can't afford to put petrol in their car, they're not going to go to the factories, and the factories will stop operating. Um, so you 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 have a, a problem where, given our current infrastructure, you have to give people sufficient fossil fuel energy to be able to go to work. Um, but you if you if you try to do it through a price mechanism, they can't do it. You get the gilets jaunes. Only if you get the sort of price spike you're you know, talking about there. You know the gilets jaunes was in response to what about a three four percent increase in the cost of diesel, courtesy of a tax that Macron brought in ostensibly to address. Uh, Fossil, uh, uh, carbon uh, rules of the European Union, but really to get his budget deficit back below 3%. Um, and bang, he had a revolution on his hands. Well, if 200 bucks of, of, of a barrel of oil, yes, you'll have a revolution in America on your hands. So you can't do it through the price system. So I'd be rationing. Now, I know that's totally unfeasible right now. It won't happen. But uh, I, I wouldn't be relying upon the price system or the market system here. I'd, I'd be saying, Nationalise a lot, produce sufficient for people's uh, needs, uh, make it very expensive to buy gas, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. I'd be pricing it according to the income distribution, not according to uh, a, a flat, you know, law of one price garbage. Um, but you certainly, what we're doing right now is making oil and gas, uh, oil and, and coal companies extremely profitable. And uh, I'm sorry, that's not where you want the money to go right now.
0: Hey there, sorry to interrupt. A lot of Forward Guidance listeners are not into crypto. If that's you, please skip ahead, get back to the interview. Some Forward Guidance listeners are into crypto. Some own crypto, a smaller percentage owning lots of crypto and a much smaller percentage work at crypto hedge funds. If you're in those latter two categories, Blockworks Research might be a good fit for you. Blockworks Research is a research and data platform that analyzes governance, tokenomics, and models of interesting crypto projects, including new protocols. There's a lot of edge that can be gained from reading these reports. You can check out a sample report at www.blockworksresearch.com research and hit the free report toggle. If that is of interest, full subscriptions can be purchased at www.blockworksresearch.com slash sign dash up. You can also get 10% off using the discount code Guidance10. Thanks, and let's get back to the interview. And before I ask my, my final question, I just want to say uh, it's been a pleasure having both of you here, and, and thank you, everyone, for watching. You should definitely want to find out more about uh, our guest's work. Uh, you can find Doomberg on Twitter at DoomburgTee and his, uh, their writings at slash about you can find professor keen's work on twitter at prof steve keen uh, and at uh, stevekeenfree.com my final question is we've been talking a lot about wood you know professor what do you think is the best way to go forward Doomberg, what do you think is the best way to go forward but leaving the the wood the the what's the best solution uh, out of it what do you think will happen what is your base case uh, let's say over the next five to 10 years of how private industry as well as governments will ap- approach energy production and what, what will be the significance, consequences, positive or negative uh, of that. Professor Keen, let's start with you and i uh, will give you the final word.
2: I think Stuart Kirk's speech at the Financial Times last year is a pretty good indication of what of the level of awareness in the finance sector. And that's because they've swallowed the garbage coming out of economists to say that, you know, six. To, this is quoting William Nordhaus now, six degrees of global warming by 2100 will reduce GDP by 8.9%. Uh, according to the scientists, I read six degrees of global warming by 2100 will mean we'll be, that'll be the end of human civilization. Uh, so finance sector is completely uh, out of kilter with the actual implications of climate change. Uh, What I think is going to happen is we will continue doing exactly what we're doing now. I did a a simple regression using an exponential function on carbon dioxide parts per million in the atmosphere from 1600 to now. And the the, the, the exponential function with roughly a 2% rate of growth per annum in the carbon dioxide concentration fitted the data with a correlation coefficient that was 0.9993, you know, crazy. We're just simply just using more carbon dioxide and and, and that's it without thinking about it. We'll hit some sort of catastrophe. There's all sorts of possibilities which will happen. That will make, you know, the people in the area where the catastrophe occurs will have their behaviour fundamentally altered, but the people who aren't where it happens will continue doing exactly what they're doing now and may even increase the use of energy and carbon and fossil fuel-based energy. So I see us basically accelerating towards a brick wall and then parts of us will try to drive through the brick wall before we have any level of intelligent response. And the intelligent response to me has to be something of the nature of what we did in World War II, which means rationing, uh, dramatic redirection of energy, basically the end of capitalism, okay, because you'd, it, it'll be a government-run system on a war footing, um, that's what I envisage. And I'm blaming the neoclassical economists for eliminating capitalism.
0: And sorry, Professor, I understand the production of all of this green energy, you, uh, it needs to have a vigorous state production in the same way governments you know, take a lot of economic power when they're producing tanks. And that's the, the main product is tanks. I, I understand that. But what about after all of the wind, solar, nuclear is produced? You think it, it won't return to a private market capitalist state like it did in 1946 in the U.S.?
2: Oh well, the private corporations made the guns. Okay, they were paid for by the government, and they made a profit out of it. So it's not a case that you won't have private businesses, but the directional will come from the government, not from the private sector. Trying to, you know, they weren't selling the they weren't selling the tanks on a speculative basis for to, to a whole range of consumers. It was one customer uh, giving them a price they could make the tanks for a substantial profit at, uh, but also saying don't produce cars in the meantime. So that's the sort of world I'm seeing in that sense. I think. When we come through it, we'll realise that we jeopardise the capacity for this planet to support life, and, and that is the complete denial of what we should be doing. If we forget about our capitalist background, forget about socialism or anything, any of our isms, we are the, the only tool-making intelligent species on the planet, and we should be treating ourselves as the guardians and custodians of life on the planet, and we have not done that. So a civilization and a society, which is the first and foremost thing we have to do as humans, is to make make, make sure this planet remains combat compatible for life. That's not capitalist. That is a totally different level of philosophy. It's not socialist either. It's seeing ourselves as as the representatives of life on the planet. And we're not that at the moment. We're the destroyers of life on the planet.
0: Bloomberg, your vision uh, for the future, not, not not what you think should happen, but what you think will happen. To Professor Keene, I gave the time horizon of, of five to 10 years, but you can go longer. You can go 20, 50 years if you want. And, uh, you know, I'm just looking at a chart of the from the uh, U.S. Energy Information Administration, EIA, and it's a chart of their sort of forecast for where they think nuclear, coal, natural gas, petroleum, and, and renewables will, will go. And, you know, I hope you can just see that chart in your head because you're you're so plugged in on this. But uh, I mean, do you think that that is uh, accurate? Do you think that, you know, uh, uh, renewables will be more or less? I mean, how do you think this energy mix will will go going forward?
1: I think um, most of the developing world will completely ignore any concerns about the climate and will work post haste to bring as high a standard of living to as many of their people as possible, making all of the sort of the same journey that we have, uh, including massive income inequality, which already exists in these economies. If you've ever been to India or China or Brazil, you, you see it firsthand. Um, I think the behavior of Biden and of the Germans and Western Europeans in general indicates that the moment we begin to feel even the smallest amount of pain, we will too retreat back to the momentum of the path that we're on. And so it really just comes down to whether the concerns that the professor has uh, will be materialized, and if they are materialized, then I'd be the first to say, wow, we got that wrong. Um, I, I'm not quite as bearish um, as the professor, but uh, at the same time, again, as I said at the beginning, I'm not a climate scientist. Uh, that's not my area of expertise, and so um, we're going to run the experiment, and um, the politics of the, of the day dictate that it's unavoidable, and so um, if the worst does come to pass, I will be breaking out the best wine in my collection and, and enjoying it um, before we're all done on this, uh, on this planet.
0: Uh, there we go. Well, we're going to leave it there, uh, Professor Steve Keen, Dunberg, Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, everyone, for watching. Uh, hopefully, you learned uh, uh, you learned a lot from this interview, as I did. Regardless of uh, what your priors are, I think you know the best way to learn is to, to listen to people who you, you disagree with. And uh, Dunberg and Professor Keen uh, know an immense amount about this. So, uh, uh, thank you, everyone, and have a good one.
1: Same, same to you guys. Thanks.
0: Thank you. Forward Guidance, the program you just enjoyed, hopefully, can be viewed on YouTube at Blockworks Macro or heard as a podcast on Apple Podcast and Spotify. Episodes are typically released on Apple and Spotify a few hours before they air on YouTube. Please leave a review on Apple Podcast if you feel so inclined. Also, you can get 10% off to Permissionless 2023 and Blockworks
1: Research using code GUIDANCE10. Thanks again and be well.